This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. This is Genre Talk. Genre Talk with your hosts, Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. And special guest, Christine Taylor Butler. I met an editor from Scholastic who contacted me after the conference and said, would you like to write early readers? And I said, I don't even know what those are. Now, here are Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. Hello, Philip. Hello, audience. How are we doing today? Yeah, pretty good, man. How about yourself? Doing good. Doing good. So I've been checking out Jonathan Mayberry's latest book, Relentless, lately, and really enjoyed that. It's It was a number one within a few hours of release. And it's the latest in his Joe Ledger ongoing series. So that's been kind of a fun read. Are you reading anything interesting? At the moment, actually, I'm not reading a whole lot. I've just been just watching the heck out of just a lot of the streaming stuff. And yeah, I know you're watching Loki. You mentioned oh, that yeah. before. I just watched the uh, season finale yesterday. And, man, I, I, have you watched any of it yet? I watched the first two episodes, and I haven't watched the rest yet. Okay. Yeah, I I uh, totally loved that. It was it was awesome digging the whole thing. I uh, just watched Thor yesterday, though, so I kind of got back into the whole universe. It, well, you know what I just dis- – I mean, I, it's not that I just discovered it. I, I kind of knew it was always there. I just hadn't watched it. it was uh, the Iron Fist stuff, like all the, the Marvel stuff over on Netflix, right? With, like, oh, Avengers. yeah. And I just started watching that, Iron Fist, and I just went through the entire first season, and I was digging that, too. So I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through and kind of watch everything they have to offer with the uh, – Cool. Are you yeah. still watching Little House on Prairie with your wife and daughter? We, no, you know what? We finished it up. We finally finished it up. It was – you know. You watched it, all like eight or nine, ten seasons of it? Nine seasons, plus yeah. there was two uh, kind of – Movies. Uh, movies. There's three, actually, three movies that they made afterwards, uh, yeah. uh, you know, to kind of finish off the uh, the entire uh, series. And, man, so first of all, yeah, it took us a, you know, it took us a few months to kind of get through all those. It, it, you can kind of get a sense of, like, I, I, now I understand why they kind of canceled the show. I, I think it was kind of hard to maintain that same feel of the early days once kind of Laura, you know, you know, Laura Ingalls grows up and she starts having a family of her own, it just, it doesn't feel quite the same. And well, course, once Michael Landon was gone, like, yeah. well, he, he didn't, he, he didn't, he was still producing the series, but he wasn't like a regular all the time. Mm-hmm. The feel of the show changed a little bit because he was kind of the heart of it, ironically. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, 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 it was, it was changing even before that, right? Because he left, you know, I, I think, you know, Laura had kind of already kind of, you know, definitely Mary was like the first to move out and, you know, start you know, yeah. and then of course, Laura, that started happening with her. And, they, and then they brought in a couple of other kids, you know, to kind of still give you that feel of that you had originally, you know, and, yeah. and he, you know, but it wasn't quite the same. And obviously they had already tapped, I mean, they had already kind of gone into that well, because they did that originally with Albert, right? Like Albert was kind of like the first, you know, like, hey, let's bring some, a new kid in. And, yeah, and, I mean, and and yeah, and that and, and Albert was okay, but it, that, that never really worked for me. I, and and I, some of that was all very, none of that was actually historical at all. None of it had anything to no, do. No, of course not. All those yeah. extra kids were completely and utterly never real life related to the Ingalls family. So it was kind of a, 
a stretch, you know, of a lot yeah. of people. But you know, and they it, those other two kids. That, and one of them was Jason Bateman, you know, which I, 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 I and one of them was Shannon Doherty. Yes, yes, that was the uh, the niece of uh, of of like Laura Ingalls. It was like uh, I think yeah, in 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 Almazza Wilder. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. I I don't know. I I thought it just be, it did become a different show. You're right about that. You know, so I don't know. I I, I just I did finish up, and I don't know if we talked about this before. I did finish up Bosch seven seasons, which is just an amazing, amazing detective show. Yes, I just finished that myself, too. And I love that. So I've been looking for new stuff because I've watched Longmire over and over again, and I've watched Bosch over and over again. And I, I've been checking out show. Mystery Road, which is an acorn show. Mystery Road is an Australian Aborigine detective okay. who is investigating stuff. And there's actually two movies, and the movies are fantastic. Really good movies. The first movie, Mystery Road, especially, and then they did a TV show called Mystery Road, and I've been watching that, and I've been really enjoying that. It's set in Australia, and it's him investing country. It's a it's a modern day western, basically. He's investing getting crimes kind of in the outback. It's a really good thing. I've been enjoying. I also have been going back and rewatching the entire run of Family Ties, which I hadn't seen in years. And boy, that's a good show. Man, it's a really good show. Uh, so, you know, okay. a lot of that stuff is fun to go back and revisit. Well, if you know a show, if, if you like Longmire, and, and I mean, it has a very different feel, but a show that I've, I've, I've watched and I can't say enough good things about is Yellowstone. I don't know if you've you know, it. I Kevin. tried one episode of that, and I just did not like any of the characters enough that it, it didn't draw me in. The, yeah, the doctor I, in particular is such a bitch that I just completely and utterly was turned off. Yeah, she is probably one of the best characters in that show. Once they, once you get into it, and they start, you know, just fleshing out those characters, the development on that is just great. It, the arcs, they're just, yeah, it's a well. And they all, they only have one season free to me. Otherwise, I have to pay. And I, so I, I, at some point, I probably will watch a little bit more. But I, it just, it didn't hook me right away. Other things were more interest. So. But I have heard that some people do like that. So I, I definitely, you know, that is certainly a direction to go. It is, you know, it's just a lot of content out there, man. There's, There's just a lot, lot of great st- content out there right now. You know, yeah, there really that, is. Gosh, gosh, like Probably, it, I'm, think, I'm, I'm thinking about rewatching that entire series now that, it, you know, they're, they're done with that. I think season seven, I've always thought that season one and two were the best seasons of that show. And it kind of faltered a little bit in the middle. But season yeah. seven was just as good as season one. Season seven was fantastic. Yeah. And that show really, really well. So I was really impressed. And the acting and writing on that show is always top notch. And they handled the procedural stuff with great realism, which I have respect for because that's what I try to do with my John Simon book. So, I mean, they did the research. They've done the stuff. They have the good consultants. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a great show. It's just a really good show. So, yeah. There's some streaming stuff for you guys. I Again, Relentless by Jonathan Mayberry for a book. Other books you want to check out are the last Lost Tribe series by this week's guest. The Lo- She's written more than 80 books, including Lost Tribe. Her name is Christine Taylor Butler. She's an African-American author based out of Kansas City, and she's an advocate for diversity and character representations and leads by example. She has uh, also written a number of children's books, and she's going to talk about all of that kind of stuff. Interestingly, she has a, a background in civil engineering and architecture from MIT, So, and she's written some nonfiction stuff too. So anyway, 
we're going to stop talking about streaming and books and get into this and let you listen to this week's interview. So we hope you enjoy the show. This is John Talk. Christine Taylor Butler is the author of more than 80 books for children and young adults, including her speculative series, The Lost Tribes. A graduate of MIT, she holds degrees in civil engineering and art and design. She's been a featured speaker at American Library Association, its Sibley for Adolescent Literature, World Science Fiction, and others. And she's going to be the upcoming Toastmaster for the 2021 World Fantasy Convention in Montreal, Canada, which I believe is going virtual. She has served as an awards judge for both the Society of Midland Authors and for PEN America, currently lives in Kansas City with her husband, Kim, a physician. Christine, welcome to Genre Talk. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. So let's start out with our usual question. What kind of things were you fanning over growing up? Oh, gosh. You know what? Um, we did not have a lot of money in in my family, you know, uh, when I was, was born, you know, my parents were 18, and then my dad was going to Case Western Reserve. Uh, so I was in the library all the time. And so, you know, I was thinking, you know, I love books like Secret Garden and Jane Eyre. And then I was always reading, you know, Alfred Hitchcock anthologies and sci-fi and horror anthologies because you know, I could get through short stories in between chores. And then I thought, what stands out to me? <laughs> Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke was, was one of the books that kind of confused me, but it stuck with me. And, you know, then there were the typical ones like Wrinkle in Time. Um, but, I, you know, I wrote this list and I thought, hmm, what else was I fanning over? Star Trek, Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, and Lost in Space. Lost in <laughs> Space. Yeah. That and Land of the Giants. I mean, you know, that you know, TV was that visual uh, way of getting content for sci-fi. Right, right. So, where did you go to school, and when did you start writing? Did you study craft? I know you did MIT. Did you do any studying uh, before that? You know, no. Your writing's not really considered a, a legitimate career when I was growing up, and you know, so there was English class. Every student is blowing off. You know, if you ask me what a subjunctive clause is right now, I'm, you know, I'm going to turn around and walk away. But I was writing all the time. I was reading all the time. But it was just, you know, for me. And it never dawned on me that I could study writing at MIT. You know, MIT was a technical school. Everyone said, hey, you're good at math. You should go to a school like that. So I did, I did art and architecture and Baroque music, and now I'm telling a lot of young people, if you go to MIT, there's an entire department on literature and writing because Juno Diaz is um, a professor there. Right. So what is a subjective club? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like you anymore. <laughs> You've got to set that one up for me there. So, I got the Internet up. I'll look it up. Uh, there you go. That's that's the beauty of Google. So what made you decide to write children's and YA literature? Okay. So, you know, yeah, I always kind of write, wanted to write adult stories, but, but two things happened. One, I became a mom. And if you think about it, when you're having children and, and they're prolific readers, because my husband is a prolific reader as well, and I'm looking at the, the, the books that they're reading, and there's no kids that look like them. And I had this running joke about we should just rename February Black Oppression Month because every year 
the only books featuring, you know, kids of color were about slavery or civil rights or some race-based angst. And, you know, you'd go to the movies and it was sounder. So, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while, and then I've been interviewing MIT prospective, you know, applicants for, you know, a couple of decades. And I was starting to see this pattern of even suburban kids were not reading for fun anymore. And so the universe gave me a gift, which is my arch nemesis became my boss. And there is this, there's, there's this saying that one of the Hallmark managers, that's where I used to work, used to say, which is, you know, messages come up to send you, you know, things come up to send you a message. If you don't get the message, it will come back and send a louder message. And that louder message was, was my arch nemesis. My boss was changing places with him to kind of clean up his mess. And he was mean. And one day I said, I, you know, I had this really good career at Hallmark and was getting promoted all the time. And one day I said, I've had enough. I quit. I just got a cold turkey. I just, I quit. And, I, and they said, well, you can't quit. Nobody quits Hallmark. And I said, well, I have a $6 million project coming in early and under budget and 100 people working on it. They know what to do, but I am not working for him one more day. And they said, what are you going to do? And I just off the top of my head, I said, you know what? I'm going to write children's books. And they said, oh, you'll be back. And I said, no, I'm a mortgage, so I have to turn this into a real job. And I have never looked back. Well, that's great. And so here you are. All those, what, 80 80 books later, right? 80 books later, yeah. My kids wouldn't stop eating, so I had to keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. And, and, you know, (laughs) it's interesting that you – you know, you're talking about just like representation, and 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 it's 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 so important. I have a lot of friends too that you know, we're creating content that is aspirational, right? As opposed to the work that we're we're used to seeing about our, you know, the, like you said, the oppression of of, of minorities, or, you know, things of that nature. And and it, and it's good to kind of bring it into especially like sci-fi and fantasy has that ability to kind of like create these stories that really are aspirational and you can also kind of like see yourself in them i think that's what's yeah awesome about about your work and you know the first lost tribe book had like these five friends who are like in a race against time like you know involving like this ancient tribal artifacts that hold like the fate of the universe in balance when they discover that their ordinary parents are like scientists on a secret mission, right? So yeah. where did that yeah. idea come from? You know, because it's, you it's know, so packed. I love it. The, the, the danger of being like ADD or ADHD, I don't know which one I am, is, you know, you generate all these ideas. And I had written a picture book called My Mother is, is an Alien. <laughs> and the, the, the premise behind it was, because, you know, this happens in everybody's family, is no matter what you do, your parents kind of figure it out. And so, you know, I tell people I, I walked in the house one day and my kids were on the couch doing their homework. And I looked at them and I said, why? And my husband says, what? And the kids were like, mom, she made me do it. I, I, I didn't turn on the television. And my husband says, how do you do that? And I said, oh, because I did the same thing to my parents. And I said, so I had this idea about, you know, these kids who couldn't figure out why their mother knew 
what they were doing even when she wasn't in the room and they set out to prove she's an alien. And her explanation at the end of the book is there's, you know, there's no such thing as a new trick, just old tricks executed badly. I was your age. I know everything you're thinking. And then they leave the room and after they leave the room, she puts her antenna back into her head. And I sent that to Random House to an editor who said he likes sci-fi, and he sends it back, and he says, this is way too scary, you know, for my audience. <laughs> and back then, I didn't know different editors edited different things. I was so new at this. Yeah. And it turned out his audience was kids for Thomas the Tank Engine. And I said, well, yeah, but it's supposed to be funny. It's not supposed to be scary. It's supposed to be ironic. And he said, well, no, you should turn this into a novel. And I was like, oh, my God, novels. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of work. Maybe not. And I ran across this hieroglyphic type font and downloaded it and was playing with it. And all of a sudden, this idea of this kid who desperately wants to go on an adventure, but he can't because he's got this evil uncle who hates his guts. And then the uncle shows up one day with this game and these hieroglyphic bonds and says, you have seven days to solve this puzzle and you can go on my last expedition. And it took off from there. I, don't, I, I can't even tell you why I woke up one night and that was there. I had an evil uncle who was like that, so that's probably part <laughs> of the basis. But, but that was the tension. And so I just took that and ran with it, then was at a conference for writers, you know, a Highlights Foundation has these conferences, and I was assigned two mentors. One was Jerry Spinelli, who writes, um, is an award-winning children's book writer, and the other one was James Cross Giblin, who's an award-winning writer and, and editor, and he says, I think you're on to something, and then told Patty Gouch that, who was the VP at Penguin at the time, and she was editing Red Wall, for instance, and she took an interest and, and became an early mentor. So that's, that's how it evolved. Well, that, that, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's so much of our, the stuff that we do is kind of drawn out of our lives, right? And, and mm -hmm. that one uncle suddenly becomes the character in our books, and that's uh, – <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very familiar with that process. But so was the idea originally a trilogy, or did, or did that develop, like, later? It, it, you know what? I was trying really hard to just get through one book. <laughs> and um, yeah. I, I have a – you know, I, I have a, a good friend now. Um, we met because at the time we had the same agent, Susan Vaught. And, and she, you know, she's an Edgar Award winner and is just really good at what she does. And she kept saying, Christine, why don't you let your characters speak? And I said, well, you know, they're speaking too much because I can't constrain this in one book. And I think my first draft was 125,000 words, which is way too long for, like, middle grade. And, wow. and so I said, well, you know, let me break this up. And the reaction to the first book was so positive, but as like with all books, like if, you know, for instance, my family was reading Harry Potter and Harry Potter was not anybody's favorite character. You know, Hermione was my husband's favorite character. Juan Weasley was my favorite character. So I said, what would happen if I took the second book and went into multiple points of view so that you're not always seeing the story unfold in Ben's eyes, who's the main character? And so we did that with the second book. And we knew there would be a third. We knew there would be a third book to kind of wrap it up. 
but um, now it's four. It, it, it'll be four because there was, there was too much to get through in terms of their adventure and, and the dynamics, working with their new warrior teams. And, and, and so the third book, which is much delayed, is where the kids are going through their rite of passage with their new teams. So one of the things that I've noticed in your books is that, like, there's this kind of underlying, like, you know, this history and science and how important is that kind of historical and scientific accuracy for you in your work? I, I tried really hard to stay as close. If I'm, if I'm using something historical, I, I, you know, even if I'm making a joke about it, I'm trying to leave breadcrumbs for kids mm-hmm. because, like I said, when I, when I was interviewing, what I discovered is there's so many students getting to 12th grade who only know whatever happened to be on the assessment test or what was yeah. taught in class. And I said, you know, I could do sci-fi, and I could make up anything, but think about it. We don't know where those Omeg heads come from, and we don't know where the Easter, you know, where the Easter Island heads originated in terms of, you know, there are some people who thought, well, they're heads, and they were quarried, and then they used ropes to kind of walk them down the, the, the hill. But now there are, you know, I think National Geographic's had a team that discovered bodies below some of those heads. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, that was recent, and, yeah. And, and no one has ever broken into the tomb of the emperor with the terracotta army because the mercury content in the soil is 4,000 times the toxic level, but it's rumored that inside his tomb he has an entire miniaturized reproduction of China complete with uh, mechanically flowing rivers of mercury. So I thought, hot dog, you know, I can work in the history while still, you know, positing the thought, what if those terracotta soldiers actually came alive? And what's really in that tomb? So, I, you know, I try, to, I try to take the kids on an adventure on Earth that involves real things. And I think in the third book, um, there is a short, there's a short trip to the moon <laughs> because there's a base up there. And so I'm actually trying to figure out, okay, what's the geographic layout? How far is the distance? So that if a kid wants to look, a lot of that stuff is based on a real math, you know, calculation or a real science. Yeah, that's so, su- go ahead, Phil. Yeah, go. I mean, no, that's super interesting. I mean, I had no idea about the 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 mercury content in the soil there uh, uh, with the terracotta soldiers and stuff. I mean, it's, how do you go about, I guess, researching the search, the story, the story that you put together? Um, I have uh, I have a subscription to National Geographic and. Back before the Internet was big, I actually was buying for teachers as a, like a going-away present when my kids graduated. They used to have like CD and DVD sets of every issue dating back to 1888 Wow! with, with a search engine. So you could pull that up. But now there's so many documentaries. And um, so, so I, you know, I, I watch a lot of um, – movies and then I go read a lot of articles and interviews of people who have actually gone to certain places and I am very enamored now with Google Earth because I have a scene in the in the second book where the kids are trying to get to the Smithsonian to steal the Hope Diamond which anybody with any common sense knows you can't do and the Smithsonian puts its GPS location on its website 
But if you switch it to a number as opposed to using ordinal um, coordinates, so don't use the northwest, east, south, you switch it to a number, it becomes plus and minus. And if you change the, the value, you end up somewhere else on Earth. And so this poor girl's trying to get her friends to the Smithsonian, and she's dialing wrong because she gets the plus signs wrong or the minus signs wrong. And my editor said, how do you know where they're going? And I said, oh, you plug it in, and it, Google Earth will show you where they are, and then you can zoom in and look at the terrain. So that's how I know they end up in Tajikistan. And then when she says, no, no, I got this. Let me try one more time. And then they end up on a rock off the coast of Argentina. Because it, 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 it's supposed to be hilarious. You know, yeah. I said, but it, it's still real. And then MIT taught the book for their um, middle school summer program this past summer. And one of the professors figured out what I was doing so she created a guide for the students with links to all the places the kids were going, you know, to the British Museum and the Smithsonian, and so they could actually go look at what it was I had been looking at. That is so cool. Yeah. Wow. So, so there's two books out. The third one you're still writing, right? I'm finishing the <laughs> – yeah, you know, I'm in the witness protection program right now. Um <laughs> The, 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 the short answer is the, the publisher made a mistake on the second book, which came out in 2017, and said the third book was coming out in 2017, but did not have the manuscript because everything changed based on what we had done with the second book. And about that time, my husband was in the hospital twice, so I was literally sitting in ICU with machines going on, trying to write what was supposed to be, you know, this fun, goofy caper. But because there is, okay, I guess this is a spoiler, there is a death at the end of the second book. The entire third book became this emotional, grieving kind of thing, and it just, it didn't work. And I said, you know what, I don't want to rush this to, to make an arbitrary deadline. It needs to be right. And so I would say all but the last 20% is at the publishers now, and they're really happy with what I've changed. And um, the, the last part, which I'm rewriting, is them actually breaking into the tomb of the uh, Terracotta Army. Gotcha. Okay, so, you know, people can hopefully look forward to a third book in the series, 2021-2022-ish. I'm, I'm expecting to turn the draft in this week. Um, I heard there's a hit out on my life, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're, try, you're trying to become a rival of George R. R. Martin, that's all. <laughs> I will have my book done before George does. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've written – well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the other book? The, well, you kind of did tell us a little bit about the second book, but is there anything, anything you want to tell us about the second book that you haven't told us? Well, you know what? My, my daughter's really funny. You know, I, have a, I have a kid in theater and, and fine arts and, and, and one in film, and they figured out that the first book based on the cover was Earth, which makes sense because the kids are looking for these artifacts at all these weird places on Earth. And the second book was Water because they, they, they go find the lost city of Atlantis, you know, underwater. And so my daughter said, well, what is the third book? And I said, there's a whole lot of exploding volcanoes. And she said, um, oh, fire. 
you know, and, and so I hadn't realized that's how the things were working out, but it, but it actually is. So in the, in the second book, you know, I have to do the Disney thing. In the second book, the kids are, you know, the kids were separated from their parents in the first book, and it's not clear if their parents are alive or dead. So the kids are now living with the, the I'll, I'll call it the corporation that their parents were secretly working for, and they are living in this remote, remote um, base station beneath the pyramids and, and having to learn this new paradigm. And so the uncle takes them um, on a training trip to the lost city of Atlantis where they meet the head of Atlantis, and he's kind of a, you know, a badass. And, and so it, it, it turned out to be fun because the kids decide, you know, they can be as smart as the adults. And, and there is this one scene where this kid is missing his dad and he's got this new mentor and he sees this old computer that looks like his dad. And he says, can I have that? And the guy goes, what do you have to trade? He says, well, I don't have anything to trade. You know, I have nothing. And, and, and you know, and, and as they start talking, he realizes that this new mentor needs this diamond. And he says, I know where you can get one. And the guy goes, where? And he says, well, you know, the Hope Diamond in, in Smithsonian. And the guy goes, well, you go get that for me, and I'll give you this old computer. And he says, well, that's not even fair. And the guy says, you know, if you want to be a warrior or not. So part of the book are these kids scheming on how they're going to go to Smithsonian and, and steal the Hope Diamond, which, of course, you can't do. But it was, it was a hilarious, you know, you know, they're scheming in the dark and, so the third book is um, they're kind of reconciled to the fact that their parents may be gone for good, uh, that they might have been lost in battle. And so they are going through rites of passage training, and it's the same as the second book. You are in a lot of cases seeing the kids alone, absent from their other friends, because that increases the tension of the book when the kids don't know what the other ones are doing at any given time. Yeah. Now, this is kind of your latest book. You've also written the kind of first reader, early reader, and picture books for Scholastic and so on and so forth. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. How did that come about, and what are the challenges to writing for such young audiences? Oh, interestingly enough, when I was at Highlight, you know, for, for the conference working on tribes, I met a, an editor from Scholastic who contacted me after the conference and said, would you like to write early readers? And I said, I don't even know what those are. You know, I got to know what they are, but I don't know how to write them. And she says, well, you know, I'm a damn good editor. Pitch me some ideas. And I pitched her like three ideas, and she took two of them. And so I learned really quick how to write children's stories between three and 600 words and get in and out of a story. And Scholastic picked up two of them. So those were my first two books. And No Boys Allowed sold like 100,000 copies. And I think Mom Like No Other, which was a rhyming book, sold about 80,000, 90,000 copies. So that was the beginning of my career. And then I was done. And then I met Eileen Robinson, who is, in fact, the editor on The Lost Tribes. And she was working at Children's Press. And we met at a conference in Houston, and she sent an email later and said, would you like to write, you know, early readers? And I said, you know, no. And she says, well, we don't have a lot of people who like to write nonfiction. So I had to learn. And her books spanned anywhere from 100 words to 4,000 words. So the example that I would give is if I'm writing Earth for 
young kindergartner readers. I'm constrained by what words I can choose, and I'm constrained by how long a sentence can be and how many multisyllabic words can be in a sentence, and you have to do progressions, you know. So you have to say, you know, Earth is the, you know, the third planet from the sun. The sun is, uh, you know, there has to be this progression. But then I had to turn around and write the exact same content for older readers with 4,000 words and sidebars and, and references, and, and you can do a lot more content. And so it is both fascinating, um, a little frustrating. Um, you know, even with 4,000 words, there's a lot you have to leave out. But, you know, I, I had a good time, and I realized it was perfect for my personality because I'm easily bored. So, you know, Scholastic would call up and say, you know, can you write a book about hydrology? And I'm going, I don't know anything about hydrology, but I guess I will at the end of the month. And, and my, my stick, and this is what I tell students when, I, when I'm in schools, is that the key to writing those books is, is to not just write the basic facts, but to find those really quirky things that other people would not normally know, like the Secret Service when I was writing books about American history was originally assigned to the Department of Treasury to look for counterfeiters. They were not originally assigned to protect the president, um, but they were really good at what they do. Now they report to um, Department of Homeland Security, but it's just those little weird quirky things were the same things I was doing with um, tribes when I was doing that research. So um, that's how I went from zero to 80 was I got a reputation with publishers of doing good research on sometimes mundane subjects. So were you involved with any of the arts or choosing the artists for these, or is this something that they just assigned you an artist to work with you on the project? Never, ever. Never, ever. You know, I get lucky with, when I'm working on books with Eileen, even at Ed Children's Press, um, she would say, you know, um, we got this artist and we're really happy, and what do you think? But in general, the, the way children's publishing works is you don't get a lot of say in who your illustrator is. And a lot of times you don't see any, anything until the book is well on its way to being finished illustration-wise. There's a firewall. And, and a lot of times illustrators will not talk to the authors. Gotcha. So you, you didn't have much. You kind of just had to wait and see what happened. Yeah, and you know, there, you know, I have an art background, but there are a lot of people who don't. And and the thing about the marriage between images and and text is, you want to leave room for the illustrator to innovate your book. You know, a lot of illustrators don't want like illustration notes to be told exactly what to illustrate. And you know, I I have a book coming out at Ray Craft Books. Which, which I'm really, really excited about, them as a publisher. And it's a book I tried to sell for 10 years, and no publisher got the ethnic references, not a single one. And I sent this one out, and I said, you know, you know, tell me what you think about this. And the editors got it right away, and they chose an illustrator who then illustrated a scene I said, the scent of frying chicken and frying hair wafts from the kitchen. And the illustrator, I saw some of the rough drafts the illustrator sent back to the publisher, 
And there they are in the kitchen, this family making frying chicken and straightening someone's hair with a hot comb on the stove. So I didn't even have to explain it. (laughs) He knew exactly what it was. And my response was, oh, my gosh, he's the perfect illustrator. You know, he totally gets, you know, where this is going. But, you know, that's so rare. You know, I just, I know when Tribes was coming out, um, there was not a big budget for an illustrator, and the editor called and said, the book designer is going to experiment with Scratchboard, and I cried. I did. I cried. And Ken said, what's going on, my husband? And I said, Scratchboard in children's publishing tends to be very primitive, and this is not a primitive book. Yeah. And when I see the artwork, it's Patrick Arismith. Who, who is probably one of the best scratchboard illustrators I've ever seen. And all of his drawings are so precise. They look like pen and ink. So because so many people didn't understand it, he created a time-lapse illustration or a time-lapse video of him illustrating my third book, Cover, um, which he put on her website where he is literally removing the black with a scalpel off of a whiteboard, and, and what is left becomes the artwork. So the biggest challenge for me has been upping my game on the writing to match how intricate his artwork has been. Wow. Yeah, I mean, to me, that, that's always one of the, uh, the great challenges as a writer. When you're, when you're paired up with that one artist that just – brings out the best in your own writing, you know, because yeah. you're, you know, you're like, well, this, this person is just on another level. I, I need to make sure that I stay on, on that, too, you know. Uh, that, that's always great. For fans, by fans, this is Genre Talk. Questions or comments? Find a Genre Talk on Facebook at Genre Talk Podcast. Now, back to the show. You know, as you're working with a lot of these children's books and, and, you know, first readers and early readers, like, how do you go about, like, staying current with how kids talk and how they interact? Mm, okay, so my kids are older now, but mm-hmm. for a very long time, that goofy audience was in my house all the time. And, yeah. and, and I always tell people, when you're writing for children, you need to go out and, and hang out with kids because they're not like you were when you were a kid. And, and I have the advantage now that I have so many books in schools and libraries that I'm at children's literature festivals all the time. Yeah. Um, and I'm in schools all the time. And, you know, even something as simple as you walk in and the kids go by and they go, oh, that's the author, and they wave. So that's how I stay current is I'm constantly surrounded by other people's kids. I mean, yeah, that certainly helps. I mean, you know, to have that uh, that interaction there. And I also know that you interact a lot with fans uh, online and at cons. You know, what kind of works best for you connecting with new fans? Is it like social media mostly or – that kind of in-person stuff, like at the cons, and at, you know. In-person's easier. Um, 
you know, I had an intern. I may have to bring her back because what I figured out is one of the reasons why writing works so well for me is because it gives me large amounts of time to just immerse in world building and the marketing part gets to be a little messy. You know, I know Brian was like, you know, you need to update your website. And I was like, yes, the nerd in me made this overly complicated HTML5 website, which I now have to tear down and redo. But um, a lot of people have interns who help them stay current on their social media and I got some advice, which is, you know, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter, and I've, I've had more success with Twitter um, yeah. with, with librarians and, and fans following me. Um, I just joined Clubhouse, but somebody said that I should either upload something every day or I should, you know, upload something consistently. Like every Monday people know I'm going to put something out. And so that – that's my new pandemic plan is to, is to try to carve out time and say, this is marketing time and this is um, fan interaction time. And how do you find an intern? Sorry to interrupt, but um, how do you find your intern? I think if you, you know, if, if, if you're in business, you can contact local colleges. I got lucky because um, I was embroiled in some call-out culture stuff and sought advice from a local resource center. And the receptionist there, who just looked at me with such disdain, you know, I walked in and I said, I need help and I need advice, and you know, she just wasn't having it, um, got me to the right people, and I became a volunteer, and she and I started talking, um, and, and I said, um, would you like to work for me part-time as an intern? Um, and, and she ended up being really good. She was beta reading my books anyway, and there's a scene in the second book where the kids sit down for an, a state dinner, and there are plates from all these sunken ships. And she said there would not be a plate that says Titanic, something that I should have known. You know, I kind of had it in place. But she said it would say White Star. And I said, what? She says, this isn't right. I mean, she was so nerdy. And she says, this is not right. And and. So she says, let me show you. And she was right. The place would say White Star. And so I said, how do you know this? And she said, when I was in high school, we had to plan a, a, a wedding for like a celebrity, and we had an unlimited budget, and I decided to do it with things scavenged from the Titanic or something. But she ended up knowing a lot of other things, and then I just realized um, – you know, she hadn't finished college. She's really, really bright. So um, that was my assistant for a while, and then I helped her find a full-time job. Yeah. But I would say colleges because I think that's how I think that's how Move Books found their intern, and she's really good. She's doing all the updating of social media because um, she wants to get into publishing. So um, this is a legitimate path for her to get the experience. No, I mean, that makes complete sense, especially, you know, for a lot of authors, you know, there's the writing aspect and then there's the kind of the author platform building part of it. And so much of it is, is you know, social media and, and interns feel, you know, it seems like the, the, the perfect kind of solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned earlier uh, just about just, you know, COVID and, and quarantine kind of, you know, so uh, in 
one of the things I know that like a lot of writers kind of talked about is kind of the struggle just kind of creating during the pandemic. Has COVID impacted your writing or, you know, uh, yeah. 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 Not, not much got done. I think if someone had said from the get go, you are going to be locked in your house for a, a year. Yeah. I would have been able to structure and plan my life differently. But when you're waiting for the shoe to drop, and, you know, I had, you know, a friend who died um, after a, a, a very long struggle with COVID. And, um, and, and I had friends who had relatives who were dying. You, you just feel like, I said, is this the apocalypse? You know, should I paint yeah. something on my door so death will pass us by? Um, it, you know, I love my house. You know, I work from home. But there's a difference working from home because you want to versus working from home because you have to. And now you can't go to the library and work and you can't go to the coffee shop and work. And for some reason, Missouri was really cold through most of the spring and summer was kind of iffy. So I couldn't even go on the porch and, and write. And I read an article by a Harvard professor who said that part of pandemic depression was we are all grieving our loss of agency. We don't have control. Um, and it was okay to let go and just be in the moment. So you know what? I could have written three books in a year if I'd known I was going to be stuck for a year, but um, it's okay. I did bike rides, and I decided to turn myself back into a person. Yeah, you know, it's strange because I remember when, you know, uh, back in March of last year, right, when when everything kind of really started, you know, as far as the quarantine and lockdown, a, a lot of my friends who are, who are writers or creatives, you know, a lot of them were like, hey, this is a good opportunity to get a lot of work done, right? And then there's a lot of mm-hmm. those other, like the other half was pretty much like, I don't want the added pressure of having to deliver a novel or a screenplay while I'm trying to navigate, you know, what at that point, like you said, felt like the end of you know, the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's interesting how that different writers, I mean, different creatives and people just face it in different ways. I mean, I know for myself, you know, I kind of had the idea like, well, you know, I'm at home. I'll have a lot of that extra time. You know, I don't have to commute. You know, that's an extra couple hours a day. But then the reality, you know, like my wife works in healthcare, So, you know, the reality kind of hit like, well, you know, this is something that we deal with constantly now. You know, like this, this, this worry about what was, you know, what was going to happen at the time. And, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it has been so impactful on, on, on creativity and writing and in, in various ways for me. Well, and you figure we had, we had the elections, and, and, and you know, th- that was such a negative time frame to be in the middle of pandemic. Um, and then we had, you know, things going on in the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, even now, you know, I play the trial of, you know, George, you know, George yeah. Floyd's, um, you know, the Derek Chauvin. In, in the background because it's like it's it's both fascinating and it's like bearing witness uh, and I'm finding I'm able to write now better but there was so much emotional going on even outside of the pandemic uh, that you sit down and you think you know what my neighbors ended up doing um, is they had bear walks you know so you put a bear in your you know, on your porch or in a window so that families who are now walking 
because they're not in, you know, they're not going to work and the kids are not in school, could find bears. And one day there is a book, you know, Twilight, the, the, the novel, is mm-hmm. tucked into the jacket of my bear. And I'm going, okay, that's really odd. So I check my security footage on the front porch, and it's a nun in a habit who comes up the stairs and puts this book in. So a week goes by, and I see her walking past with some of the other nuns, and I said, did you leave me the vampire book? And she says, yes, that was a week ago. We wondered how long it would take you to find it. And I said, oh, I found it the first day, but the bear's still reading it. And it turned out someone had left it on my on the wall at the end of my yard, and they thought it was mine and brought it up. But it was just, you know, we were talking to neighbors more, and and everyone was out on a bike, and I live on a park, so all of a sudden you see kids playing in the park. The, the, the bicycle shops were all sold out of bicycles. Yeah. Um, so I said, you know what, I think we were also busy working. We were not spending enough time living, and so it forced all of us either virtually or socially distant to start interacting with our neighbors in a different way. So I don't regret this past year. It was interesting for me because I was really productive for most of last year. After the election and then early this year, I just it just kind of fell apart. And I had a lot more, harder time focusing and writing. So I mean, I know it's just been a you know, it's just been a challenge for for all of us. You know, just so many levels. Plus, your husband's a doctor, so you've got that whole other concern going on, and he's going out and dealing with patients and all that. So, yeah, patients over sixty-five, and and, yeah. and you know, one one day he ate something that didn't agree with him, and and they were adamant, you cannot come back until we know for sure this is not COVID nineteen, and you know, it it. You know, but but even so, you know, he would get to go out to work every day, and and so he would come home and say, "Let's go on a bike ride," because he knew, you know, to protect myself, and because you know, I had just attended the funeral of a friend who who spent a month in the hospital um, because she was exposed by someone who wasn't doing what they were supposed to do, um, and so you know, he said, "You know, let's go for bike rides and let's go for." And, you know, I saw parts of the city I didn't know existed. It was really, you know, we'd pick up food and just go sit by the river and, you know, eat lunch or dinner or something um, for the change of venue. Um, yeah. So, so well, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, let's talk about craft for a minute. We're going to change change the wheel a little bit and turn the page. Yeah. What When you come up with an idea, is, is it character first, world first? theme first, and how do you go about developing that with outlines, character sketches, or are you kind of a panther? I'm a panther, <laughs> I, I, but, but you know what? I have lots and lots and lots of notes. I work in Scribner, which is probably the best thing invented for someone who, um, you know, is generating like a bazillion ideas that need to be captured. Um, so when I have ideas, I write them down. That's become kind of my notepad. But I, I usually start with a character um, and an idea. And I remember I took a class with Tess Gerritsen, if you can believe that, years ago. And I, she was teaching with Michael Palmer, and he writes strictly to an outline. And she writes scenes out of order. And she says, you know, I don't even know if the scenes will make it in a book. I'm exploring how the character is, is interacting 
with the environment and, and what their emotional responses are. So I know more about them when I'm writing. Um, and so she gave me the permission to write scenes that might not make it in a book, um, which, which was really freeing because I tried to write outlines, and the reason why the third book is late is because nothing about the third book even remotely looks like the outline I wrote a decade ago for, for, the, for the, you know, the series, um, yeah. and I'm better for that. Well, it's funny. I have a friend who, who he writes whatever scene he feels like writing that day. He, he doesn't write linearly, and I, 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 that just blows my mind because I'm pretty much a linear writer. Every once in a while, if I have a scene I'm struggling with, I'll skip to the next scene, but I'm only really – I'm a pantser too, and I only really know what's happening in the chapter, not – Maybe the maybe part of the next chapter, so it's hard for me to skip ahead. But this guy, he'll write, he outlines, and so he'll just write like a chapter, you know, a scene at the end of the book that day, and then skip back to the beginning of the book and write another scene, and it just blows my mind. <laughs> it works that way. But how many drafts do you typically do before a book is ready to go to the editor? Oh, um, it will depend on the editor, and it will depend on the book. I wrote a book for Sterling, which at the time was owned by Barnes & Noble, about um, um, barn animals landing an Easter surprise for a little girl. And, and um, oh, no, no, that wasn't it. Excuse me. Let me, let me, let me back up. Um, I wrote a book about... Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I did write. <laughs> you know, it's pandemic thought. Okay. So you've got 80 books. It's hard to remember them all. <laughs> I know, I know. I wrote two books for Sterling, and the first one, they were supposed to be holiday books. So the first one was uh, Little Lamb's Easter Surprise. And that one, I think, went through two or three drafts. You know, it's a picture book. And they sent little plush animals for inspiration. The second one was about a horse. And that book went through 25 different drafts. Um, wow. Till they, till they finally agreed with me that there was no holiday that fit a horse. Why don't and this you was a 600-word book, right? Yeah. I said, why don't we just make it a horse book, you know, about kids playing with this pony, and then it comes alive. And I remember I was trying to figure out, at one point it was supposed to be a Valentine's Day book, which didn't make any sense to me. So they said, well, can you put more red in it? And I said, well, you know, I have a red apple, and I've got a red ribbon, and, you know, the, the, they're with the pony at the circus, and they're galloping through a field with red flowers. And I said, there are no more red things I can put in here unless you want me to kill this horse, and then we have blood. At which point they came back and said, maybe you're right. Maybe this should just be a year-round book about a pony. Um, and, and it did really well for them. And, and, but that book went through 25 drafts because that was mostly, I think I probably did four or five trying to get the rhyme right, and then the rest of it was um, back and forth with the editor who kept looking for something that you can't possibly do with the constraints that they were offering and, and the word count. And Tribes went through maybe five full drafts or probably 15 partial drafts before I sent it out. It, it was a really complex book to put together. That was the first, the first book in Lost Tribes, yeah. The first book, yeah. And the second book probably went through three drafts. Yeah. Well, now, let's, as a person of color, do you feel you carry any special burden as a writer-artist? You kind of talked a little bit about, of course, wanting to do the representation thing for your kids. But are there other things that you feel, you know, 
responsibilities you have or any particular approach, how it colors your approach? I don't feel the burden of, of being a person of color. I feel the anger <laughs> of being a person of color um, because, you know, I just, I just came out of a retreat of, of published authors and every person of color that attended this retreat where we are always in the minority had the same comment. Publishing had trained authors to write what I call trauma porn. You know, that's the, that's the new word that's coming out about the way the media is producing certain movies, is that the books that they would tend to acquire had to be books in which we are unpacking our pain. And I said, ah, I'm not doing that. And so it became very hard to convince publishers that a book like Tribes was viable about a group of multicultural kids who are doing kid stuff. And their, their, their ethnic backgrounds is going to inform certain choices they make or certain things they say when they're interacting with their parents. But at the core of this, these are teenagers with underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes who just happen to be from different ethnic groups. Um, and so that, for me, is, is, is the biggest part of the burden is, is staying very close to that trajectory because I know for a fact that while schools and libraries are the major purchasers of trauma porn, parents like me don't want that, and we are not buying that for our kids. And so what, you know, I, I got really good advice from um, Jane Yolen. You know, one day, you know, she, I met her at a conference, and she was teaching, and you could get a session with her, and she says, do you want to talk about your career or do you want to talk about your book? You know, because she had read an excerpt. And I started crying, and I said, I want to talk about my career. I just, I was sobbing. And both she and the head of Highlight Foundation had given me the same advice. Um, you know what you want, and you know what kids want. Um, sometimes a rejection is because that's not the right editor and that's not the right agent. So I think tribes went through 12 rejections. I've gone through two agents. Um, and uh, the current editor on tribes was my editor at Scholastic. And she got it right away. And after the first book was published, she said, I know it's going to be successful because my nephew has been talking about it, and I can't figure out how he knows about it because the book is not technically on the shelf yet. And it turned out he was visiting, saw the ARCs in the box, grabbed one, flipped it in his backpack without telling anyone, and read it. And and, oh. um, and she said, you know, his, his questions went to the second book. And she said, well, you know, we haven't got the first book out. And then I was at L.A. Times Book Festival, and there was a gentleman there who it turned out worked – at Disney, um, but he had stopped by the booth with his son and then posted on Facebook, has not put this book down since he got back. So I, I, so, so I, I really want to thank Jane Yellen, who saw me at my lowest point, who said, you know what you're doing. You have to wait to find the person who can publish this who also knows what you're doing so that what you end up with is the book you intended, not the book they intend. I mean, that huh. sounds like great advice, obviously. Uh, it, it, you know, coming after the terrible advice of like, hey, can you write some trauma porn for us? Uh, <laughs> you know, 
and, and obviously, like, you know, throughout your career, you get this, like, terrible advice. You get great advice, you know, throughout. And, and, and it's, it always amazes me, like, what sticks with you. And, and now that you have yourself, like, 80 books under your, your belt, like, any advice that you would have to, like, aspiring writers, you know, that are trying to break into the industry? Yeah, you know, I wrote myself some notes for this question. Uh, the first one is your first draft is not the one you're going to turn in. Um, um, oh, it better if not. you get a bunch, oh yeah, um, uh, there are a lot of I, I see a lot of people with first draft stuff who say, "Now, can you help me find a publisher?" And I go, "Well, you know, no." Um, um, the second is the first book you write may not be the first book you sell. You know, so. If you can get in this, you know, I tell people the best writers are the people who write because they can't not write. Um, the worst writers are the ones who look at us from afar and say, oh, you know, children's books, those are easy, and I, and I have a lesson I want to teach, so I'm going to write this, you know, this book and, and get it out and make a million dollars. Um, so, you know, I say learn the craft. And, and part of the craft is, um, is, is reading a lot. In, in the genre you want to write in. And, and sometimes I tell people if it's a short work or even if it's a novel, type the first chapter into Microsoft Word. Just type it. Because there are a lot of times you're reading something and you think you understand the rhythm, but if you're typing it, especially with early readers, if you're typing it and you realize, wait, this is how many words are on that page. This is when they turn the page. You start to learn a little bit about um, how stuff is crafted. Um, not everybody's advice is, is the best advice. There are a lot of people who have published books, one or two, and they have a lot of advice on how to get published, and they got lucky. They don't really understand this is a process and a, and a job. So um, what, what I say is, you know, if you, if you want to be a dancer, you put in thousands of hours dancing. You know, um, if you want to do anything, you're putting in thousands of hours practicing, writing is practice. And practice for yourself. Um, a lot of what you write is never going to be seen or read by other people, but it's how you develop muscle memory. No, that, that's great advice. I mean, you know, uh, writing is the interesting one uh, uh, where, you know, so many people, you know, you, you would never think to yourself, oh, I'm just going to pick up a paintbrush and just, you know, bang <laughs> out the I'm going to go sit in front of that piano and just compose something, right? Just, you know, because it's Tuesday. Uh, but writing is one of those things where a lot of people, it's like, well, I've, I've written emails, uh, you know, so I, I can write a story. I've watched a lot of movies. Uh, yeah, it, it's definitely, it's a craft, right? And, and I That's think, so true. <laughs> yeah. People will go, if you did it, it must be easy so I can do it. And, yeah. and, 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 and then they will ask you, would you read my work? Would you, would you critique my work? And what I realized is they don't want constructive feedback. They want praise and, mm -hmm. and you say, oh, my God, I'm going to show this to my publisher. And so, there, so what I now do is there is um, there's an article somebody wrote on um, line. I forgot what, what newspaper they wrote it for, but it was like, no, I will not read your effing manuscript. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, it is, and he's, you know, he's a screenwriter, and he talks about all the people who shove their, you know, their, their you know, badly drafted stuff at him, and, and they don't want to hear what's wrong. They only want to hear 
what's right and they're going to be millionaires. And, and, and so now when people say, would you read my work, I, I say, you know what, I can answer questions, but I'm not reading your work. And, and, and well, I can legally say, I can't read your work because if for any reason I'm writing something materially similar, that puts me in a legal bind. And that actually happened to me where someone who was the second cousin of a friend's neighbor's dog catcher's babysitter's friend wrote some book and somebody says, oh, you know, Christine's a children's writer, so just send her your stuff and she'll tell you where to submit it. And I was working on a project for Scholastic, and it was a simple book for little kids where they had to go through a process. So I was describing, you know, the scientific process of baking a cake. And this person sent me, you know, a ton of manuscripts, one of which were kids baking a cake. And I called, you know, I sent it all back, and I said, first off, you should never send your stuff to someone without asking first. And I called the editor, and I said, you know, we're in trouble. And she said, why? And I said, people who are not professional writers are overly sensitive, and I know this person's going to scream that we stole their idea, baking a cake, which is a common thing. So I am rewriting the book, and she says, to do what? And I said, you know that experiment where you can take carnations and put it in a glass of water, and you add food coloring, and you can change the color of the flower? We are going to redo the book and do that. And, and, and I can have that done in two days. And, and so that's the book Scholastic published. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's an important message, uh, I think, to even deliver to people. Uh, you know, please, please, please don't send writers and editors unsolicited work unless they're okay with that because you do put people in a legal bind where yeah. – yeah, and, and most people don't even – like, you know, I – personally do not read anything that's sent to me unsolicited. I just can't. I can't, I can't do that. So, yeah, please, you know, ask, you know, and, and then just be, you know, you know, please stick to, you know, if people say don't send it, don't send it because it, 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 it probably won't even be opened. But, yeah, that, that's, that's a big one that, uh, that I'm very aware of. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... Do you have any uh, upcoming projects that you'd like to tease out or, or you know, that we can look forward to? Ah, okay. So <laughs> I'm going to crash. You know, I'm, I'm treating myself like pandemic is now going to be productive. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to finish the third book, and then um, I think people will, will be really happy with the resolution of the fourth book. So I'm going to burn through those. I have major chapters written for the final book, which still work in the story arc. So. Mm-hmm. It's given me a good head start. I am. Um, I have a picture book coming out uh, called The Get Together, which is about a, fam- a family reunion gone wrong, um, which the publisher is excited about. I am um, writing for Brian in, in an anthology, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've been invited to write for a horror anthology that has not been announced yet. I can't even say what the theme is, but it, it'll be so much fun. Um, and then, um, you know, we're going back and forth on a project that I've been working on for a while um, based around the life of the Sherpa who has the most records of climbs to the top of Mount Everest. Um, so that's my full plate on top of conferences. 
That sounds awesome. Uh, Sherpas are like the unsung heroes of of mountain climbing. Oh, yeah. for real. He, he has never, ever, ever lost a climber, ever. Wow. Oh, um, that's, that's pretty amazing. It's right there. He's, he's, he's pretty strict. And I, the rumor has it, you know, I've met him several times and we're friends now. Um, um, because I met, I, you know, I met his business partner when I was working on the um, photo essay, um, Sacred Mountain Everest. And um, I think his wife pushed him to move to Utah because it would keep him off the mountain. Because the more times you go up, the, the, the more chances you might not be coming home. Um, so, so he's in Salt Lake City now, but they actually fund a school and Tame, which is, you know, the village that he comes from, the kids in the area who are the children of Sherpa guides walk three hours in each direction to get to school. Huh. So they are, they are you know, over very rough terrain, and so they, they are funding teachers and, and there. So I cannot wait to check that out, because that, that's an interesting subject to me, super interesting. All right, so... For people who want to follow you or, you know, keep up with what you're doing, where 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 can they find you? I know you're on Facebook, Twitter and you got your website. What are the uh the relevant links um, to... I will be updating my website, um, which will then have all my social media links. Um, but right now I'm probably the most active on Twitter. So at if people Christine, want to reach out at Christine to me, TB, TB is her handle. Yeah. Christine and just a capital T, capital B, which are my initials, no hyphen. Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, just FYI, not, not, not with a K, but with a C. Yeah, yeah, you know. You know, yeah, I show up a lot, you know. And unfortunately, um, I should say fortunately or unfortunately, when you Google my name, it shows up in a lot of places now. So I'm, um, I can never commit a crime because I'm now easy to find. Well, you know, that'll just, that'll just be listed on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> Here's her, her police yeah, blog. I, I, I discovered I have a Wikipedia page, which I did not set up. So <laughs> it is either my, my, my old intern or my um, publisher's intern or somebody, but I was like, wow. <laughs> or a fan. You know, a lot of fans can do it. Yeah, you know what, that's true, that's true. And I will also say to people that, you know, now that so many conferences are going virtual, even if people are not looking for me, one of the most interesting things that has happened with, like, world fantasy and world science fiction convention and science fiction writers of America coming up at the end of May is now all of a sudden there are all these people who normally can't travel to a conference who are suddenly coming to the conferences. So when we did... Worldcon New Zealand, you know, everything got shut down, so I had to cancel the airfare and, and the hotel. But all of a sudden, there's people from the Ukraine and people from Africa, and, you know, there were all of these international people who were coming to an international conference because the barrier of travel was lower. So it is a great way to meet new authors who are not necessarily, you know, um, centered around the United States. And, and well, you're, and you're talking about, when you say CIPSA, you're talking about Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, the Nebula, right, the Nebula Conference, the Nebula. which is, which is, I guess, 
more of a private industry kind of gathering. Uh, on the other hand, World Fantasy in Montreal, which is on, which is going to be virtual, right? Or are they actually holding it? They're still trying to figure out if Montreal is going to open up the border so that decision has not been made. And I'm also okay. waiting to hear what's happening with um, World, World Science Fiction Convention. It's supposed to be in Washington, D.C., and I have not heard, um, you know, I mean, I go to Dragon Con. You know, there's so much stuff on hold while people are trying to figure out, one, can you hold it, and two, are, are people willing to go? You know, well, so, there, so anyway, the possibility is this fall you could see her, late summer you could see her possibly at World, World Fantasy Con and, um, and Washington, D.C. You could see her at Dragon Con over Labor Day weekend. And then, and yeah. then you know, the World, World Fantasy Con where she's Toastmaster, if it's held in person in Montreal, would be in November. November, correct. Yeah, so there are some possibilities for connecting with Christine that those of you who are interested can check out. Of course, you can find her books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold, so on and so forth. And you can check out her website, ChristineTaylorButler.com, even though she's going to update it because it has a list of her books and all that. If you want to find <laughs> some titles to check out, it's it's it's, 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 it's a nice looking website. I don't remember what it was, but I I think there was some out of date information that I talking about, but I wouldn't say avoid the website because uh, there's certainly helpful information on there. Um, anyway, I, Christine happens to be a good friend of mine, so I, I more of the comment about her website was about me knowing stuff that maybe you would, <laughs> most of you probably wouldn't even notice. So yeah, don't be don't be afraid to check out her website. Anyway, oh, I, Christine. I, 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 I love the ahead. advice and thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You know I was just trying to be helpful. But anyway. I do, I do. <laughs> Thank you for taking time to chat with us and come on the show. We really appreciate it. And, and you know, of course, your 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 work is very interesting. It's always fun to talk to you about it. And we wish you continued success. Oh well, thank you. I you know I really enjoyed talking to the two of you it, uh, so much. I appreciate being invited. Well, she's a lot of fun. I've known Christine for a while. We go, we see each other because we're in the same circles here in Kansas City and go to a lot of conventions. And It's fun. I hope we introduce her to some new readers because she's really a very sweet lady, and she's also really, really a talented, uh, talented writer. And, you know, her books, she does do diversity in her books, but she's not preachy. So I want to make sure people know that, you know, the stuff that she does, you know, is enjoyable reads. Her Lost Tribe is very much like a – it's a Harry Potter thing, but it's got a more of a mixed cast. You know, there's like that feel to it. So hopefully people will check it out. Yeah, what I really liked about, you know, she, you know, it, it was great talking to her. I think what I really like about uh, just kind of what she's doing is just kind of that mixing of, of like science for children in, in a way that's like digestible and fun to read, right? You know, the, the, there's nothing uh, more bland than having to read like a science book. But when suddenly you find yourself as a kid, like reading a book about some, you know, grand adventure and you're learning a little science along the way because, hey, the characters are doing a thing or solving a problem. I think that's the, the best way to kind of just get children interested in like the wonderful world of science and like, it, you know, it, the magic that science itself kind of represents. So that, that, that's really great work. I think. Well, and she she definitely is like really good at that. Like she even wrote a book on how to like read maps for kids, like to explain how to read a map. So, 
she's really good at explaining complex com concepts in a simpler way and not talking down to kids. I mean, the, she writes for why young adults. So, I mean, adults will enjoy her books too. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, so I think, yeah, you know, you can find her at Christine Taylor Butler.com. And then she's online on Facebook as Christine Taylor Butler also on Twitter as well. So, you know, hopefully people will check her out. Um, I think she's Casey Mom on Twitter, but we'll put all that in the show notes, which, again, you guys need to check out at anchor.fm slash genre talk podcast. So go there and see the show notes. Again, you can follow us on our Facebook page, genre talk podcast, facebook.com slash genre talk podcast. And um, we list who our upcoming guests are. We, we've given an opportunity for people to ask questions, but nobody's taken us up on it yet. So I figure one of these days, It'll happen. I need to update that page and give you the latest list of guests. And we have some cool people coming up. And then, you know, you guys might want to check out a few other uh, old podcasts we have. We have the previous 14 episodes of the previous season, and then we have 14 more episodes this season that you can listen to. So definitely check all that out, too. We are also at Genre Talk Podcast on Twitter. And, uh, you know, we will tweet out announcements when we do an episode every two weeks so we'll be back again in two weeks so thank you for listening and we hope you guys stay safe out there and have a great great time these next two weeks we'll talk to you soon John or John. genre talk is hosted by brian thomas schmidt and philip vargas Music for Genre Talk is Your Guess Why by DJ Manifesto. Editing was by Randy Strew for Envision Podcasting. Copyright 2021 to Brian Thomas Schmidt and Philip Vargas. <laughs> <laughs>